Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. The big challenge for Putin is whether when military things start to go wrong, he will start to fall victim to the hope of, well, one more push, one more expansion. In other words, try and win the war militarily, which he can't do. What if Russia's bombing campaign in Syria has very little to do with Bashar al-Assad and even less with the Islamic State? This week on War College, we do a little Kremlinology and try to find out what's really behind Russia's latest military moves. You're listening to War College, a weekly discussion of a world in conflict focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Here's your host, Jason Fields. Hello and welcome to War College. I'm Reuters opinion editor, Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt with War is Boring. Today we're talking to Dr. Mark Galliotti. He's a clinical professor of global affairs at New York University. And Mark is also an expert on modern Russia. His most recent book, Spetsnaz, Russia's Special Forces, details the history of Moscow's elite soldiers. Dr. Galliotti, Mark, thank you for joining us. My very great pleasure. All right, so... Well, let's uh, just start off with Russia is now in Syria, uh, aggressively fighting, at least uh, uh, dropping bombs. And um, have you heard anything about troops actually being on the ground? I mean, if you don't mind just sort of starting off there. Really, the, the troops that we've definitely seen on the ground so far have essentially been security troops for the bases. They've sent about 350 naval infantry that they're Marines. Um, and they are essentially making sure that the base at Latakia, which is the main forward base of the Russians, both air force and drone operations, and also some of their facilities in Damascus are secure. There's almost certainly a few others, intelligence officers, forward air controllers, perhaps some special forces. But essentially, this is something that the Russians are still trying to keep as an arm's length war for them. The Syrians, the Syrian militia, Hezbollah and the like can go and do the ground fighting. They will do the pounding from the end. Okay, so I think that sort of begs the next question, though, which is how far do you think Vladimir Putin is willing to go in Syria? I mean, if he had to put in troops, would he do so? I think he'd be very reluctant to. My concern is, though, precisely that, first of all, there is no clear sense of an exit strategy or even a de-escalation strategy. And secondly, it's not quite clear how far it's the military that is in charge of the overall context of the operation. At the moment, after all, we're still in the very early 
um, techno thriller war phase. It's all about planes going and delivering precision munitions, cruise missiles arcing out of the Caspian Sea. All very dramatic. It's giving Putin exactly the visuals he wants, as well as the political impact in the West, which is what it's primarily about. But we know things are going to go wrong. There's already been, for example, a mortar attack on the Russian embassy in Damascus. And we know that asymmetric warriors, what they do is they try and find ways around the other side's strengths. So whether it's we see, for example, a suicide bomb attack against the naval facilities at Latakia, certainly I think it would be based. Um, ships carrying munitions, which for me would be one of the obvious targets, or, or whether it's just simply that the Saudi or Turkish or other backers of other militia groups start providing shoulder-fired surface-to-air missiles. Something is going to happen which is going to make it tougher for the Russians. And that's really when the crunch point comes. So they just simply say, well, never mind, we have a plan, we stick with it, which is often the sensible thing to do, but also the hardest thing to do. People always feel they have to do something. Do they cut and run? Which seems hard to imagine, both given Putin's own macho political persona, but also because of the wider political reasons why they're in Syria. Or do they escalate? And this is the risk. It's always that one little step. You know, we just send a few more planes. Surely that's going to do it. We just send a few troops. We'll be able to secure our facilities better. And bit by bit, they might find themselves creeping that way. But the bottom line, though, for all that is that Putin does not have significant numbers of the kind of troops that you can really deploy in this kind of an environment. He can't just send second-line conscript forces for both political and military reasons. If he's going to start sending significant numbers of ground troops, then he's basically admitting that he's not going to have them available for his campaign in Ukraine, which again very much changes the political balance of power there. Wow, so they're really that constrained? I, I didn't realize well, I mean, that. Well, I think the thing is, in a way, we are always prone to overcompensation. Um, for a long time, there had been this assumption that the Russian army was this terrible, terrible, lumbering, alcoholic, um, indisciplined beast. Then there was the very smooth takeover of Crimea by the little green men or the polite people in, in the Russian parlance. And in some ways, we've gone the other way. And we thought, my goodness, the military reform program that has been going on, particularly since 2008, actually has had real impact. Well, the truth as ever is somewhere in the middle. Um, of Russia's significantly shrunk armed forces, I mean, now total there are about 700,000 across all their armed forces, um, I would suggest that maybe a third have been properly reformed. Um, you know, really are up to, I wouldn't say American or British standards, but shall we say, without naming names, southern NATO flank standards, which is not bad at all. <laughs> Um, but there's, there's still two-thirds that is actually still pretty rubbish. It will be fine in an essentially defensive war or a sort of straightforward one where you're just in, in good, almost Soviet forms, just throwing in forces. But they're not um, of the kind of quality that they can be power-projecting into other battlefields and not start taking serious casualties. And if we look at what's happened in Ukraine, basically the Russians have been cycling in not quite penny packets, but shall we say dollar packets, um, of forces to form composite battalion tactical groups from their paratroopers, the so-called air assault troops, their naval infantry, 
their special forces and a certain number of their regular brigades that are known to be the better ones. But the point is, you, you cycle these troops through, um, they, they do their tour and then they're out and they have to be you know, replenished, casualties made up, you know, just generally they, they, they can't be exhausted. Most of the, of the Russian forces are still very heavily conscript based um, and not very good. And I think this is the thing. It's actually, it's really that, you know, at most, I would say a third of the army that is really usable. And of those, you can only deploy a certain amount at any one time before you're going to start feeling frictional costs. Um, and particularly, you can't really send conscripts. Russian conscripts just do a 12-month tour of duty, which is not really long enough. I mean, even the Russian high command admits that. Talking to Russian military commanders themselves, I mean, what they basically say is that really... Of those 12 months, you've really got them properly usable for three months. By the time they've done their basic training, and then they've done their unit training, you've got about three months before, and then the last month, they're basically drunk and demob happy. Um, now, in that context, of course, these aren't very good. And the political costs of sending them into Ukraine, let alone Syria, would be far too great. So they're having to use the relatively small proportion of their troops who are contract, contract troops, volunteers. So, I mean, for all these reasons, you know, we, we think of the Russian bear, we think of it more or less having as many troops as it ever needs to have. But in fact, I think there is a considerable risk of overstretch. And the main thing is, look, it's not just about soldiers. I mean, the, the thing that always really distinguishes modern military operations is logistics. Modern operations are incredibly voracious in terms of munitions and fuel and everything else. And the Russian supply lines are actually quite problematic. They're either having to, to supply by air which means Iranian and Iraqi airspace, so it depends on those two powers being willing to say yes, or by sea from Crimea, which is, if they're really pushing their ships a 10-day round trip, and they don't have that much sea lift capability. So I think for all these reasons, I mean, this is one, re this is one point. The Soviets never really deployed beyond their own borders far. I mean, they would go over their border into somewhere like Afghanistan, no problem, because basically that was at the end of railway and road links. But actually a proper long-range naval and air power projection of the sort that the United States has done a lot, well, the Soviets were never very good at that, let alone modern Russia. We've had some conversations on this show previously about the uh, aircraft carriers and force projection, and one thing that got mentioned was that, uh, as a matter of fact, all of Russia has a single aircraft carrier that can't be deployed at any great length of time. It just sort of proves what you were saying. I mean, it, it, that's not what they're designed for. So maybe this is a silly question, but how come this isn't better known? I mean, you would think that from the press coverage that uh, we think that the Russian military is all-powerful and that Putin is showing up the United States by doing what they're doing. Right, and this kind of speaks to something that I wanted to talk to, or I wanted to talk about as well. Um, my mother sent me a political cartoon that she thought was very clever of, you know, this machismo Putin with his shirt off standing and sitting at a, a table with Obama, and they have a game board of the world between them, and you know, he's moved his pieces into, uh, Putin has moved his pieces into Syria and is looking at Obama and says, checkmate. Um, and that's just not, you, the, the, the story that you're telling us and, and kind of what you're talking about kind of really 
calls that into question. The, it's not as straightforward as that. And he's also, uh, Putin's also facing challenges at home because of these things, right? Like you were talking about the political situation and the political challenges that he's facing. Yeah, well, I think there's several points here. But I think the key thing we have to realize, and this is actually one of the Russian strengths, and um, let's be clear, Russia is not a great world power. We're talking about a country which, depending on how you assess it, its underlying economic power is somewhere between that of Italy and Brazil. Um, it's a capacity to really sort of project hard power, distant battlefields is, is, is pretty minimal. Um, its military is reforming, but we'll actually have to see how far that goes, given its current economic problems. The key thing, though, and the Russians, this is why the Russians, as it were, play a weak hand very, very well, whereas the West has a vastly stronger hand, but tends to play it really quite badly, is two things. One is because there is a single command structure, a single will. They don't have to worry about, well, what's, what's Congress going to say or what are our European allies going to say or anything like that. But the second thing is because they have an absolutely sharp focus on the politics. This is politics by other means. They use their military as a political instrument. 30 bombers in Syria is not going to turn the war. Um, again, lots of nice visuals. And it provides a certain degree of air support for the current military operation that the Syrians and their allies are mounting. But it's not going to turn things around. The best it can do is slow the speed at which Assad's forces lose, quite frankly. But the point is, this is not first and foremost about Syria. It's certainly not first and foremost about hitting Islamic State. This is a political deployment. It's intended to do two things. One is... Um, distract a certain amount of domestic attention from the Donbass, from Ukraine, where things are basically bogged down. But most importantly of all, it's about forcing the West to reevaluate its relationship with Russia. I mean, again, this is classic Putin. It's basically causing some trouble and then more or less saying, look, you can either work with me and I can make things easier for you, or you can ignore me or work against me and I can make things tougher and more problematic. So in a way, he's just more or less saying, buy me off now. So instead of this being you know, checkmate, again, this is the classic sort of image of the, of the chessboard, I mean, essentially, this is, this is just a part of a haggling operation. He wants the West to, to basically start talking again to Russia, treating Russia more seriously, stopping its political isolation, and basically allow him a slightly more, you know, a graceful opportunity to extricate himself from his other quagmire, in Ukraine. Now, in that context, um, it, it's not I mean, that I think at the moment there's any great political problem at home. Um, suddenly, Syria has eclipsed Ukraine um, on the TV news. And that's very much the way the Kremlin controls the public. But one of the things about that is I think that's exactly the point, is that the Syrian spectacle is meant to distract ordinary Russians which will allow Moscow to basically make some kind of an implicit deal in Ukraine or try and make some kind of deal in Ukraine and, and pull out. So what we should think of this is not first and foremost about a as a, being a military operation. This is a political operation. And in a way, the question is, the big challenge for Putin is whether when military things start to go wrong, he will start to fall victim to the hope of, well, one more push, one more expansion. In other words, try and win the war militarily, which you can't do. You said you don't think that the forces that have been deployed as of now really can make much of a difference in the war. 
you said it can slow the advance of the uh, various rebel groups. I think a lot of Americans were sort of hoping for more than that. <laughs> I mean, as long as the Russians were going to be there, maybe at least they could help. Um, but you really don't see that as a, a real possibility? Well, I think the, the, the problem is, as it were, help what? I mean, if one looks at the war in Syria, I mean, in some ways, it's a three-decker war. Um, you have the Damascus government, which is really now sort of focused down to the Alawite-held areas. Then you have the rebel groups that are, tend to be the ones being backed by the West, the, sort of the moderate rebels, quote-unquote. And then you have ISIS. But the point is, the Islamic State forces are essentially up to the north and to the east. They're not that close to the areas that are largely held by Damascus. So clearly at the moment, the Russians are, are primarily pounding the rebels that are the most immediate threat to the Syrian regime to try and precisely hold the line for the Syrian regime. They have also sent some attacks against ISIS, but that's not the main target. And the irony is, yes, of course, at the moment, America is thinking, well, you never know, you know the Russians might, might, might kill a few Islamic State fighters, and that's a good thing. But until very recently, actually, this was more or less the Russian perspective. I, I was, I was uh, in um, Moscow this summer and, and, and talking to someone close to the security apparatus who was complaining was complaining, said the trouble is the Americans aren't killing enough of them. Because this had been their big idea. They were at first delighted when Islamic State began to re-emerge. Because what that did was it drained a fair number of the younger and more radical insurgents from the Russian North Caucasus and sent them down. And that's one reason why last year you actually had a really quite substantial diminution in terrorist attacks in the North Caucasus. Because all the real hotheads were heading down south. So they thought, great, they go out there and the Americans kill them. Two birds with one airstrike. Um, but now what's happening is, firstly, we're beginning to get some signs that some of them are beginning to now return with the combat experience they've gained. Secondly, Islamic State is not withering, but quite the opposite. It is, it is depending on how you assess it, at least holding the line and, and, and arguably expanding. Um, and therefore, they're, they're now getting rather more worried about it. Um, but really, both the Americans and the Russians at different times have been hoping that the other person will be able to do, do some of the heavy lifting in terms of killing them. It is sort of a theater of the absurd. Um, it's the, it's, it's wag the dog, right? It is what it feels like. Kind of to circle back to something that you were talking about earlier, how does, how does Putin extricate himself, how does he use this to extricate himself from Ukraine? Well, I think it's clear that, that the operation in the Donbass, the operation in, in, in southeastern Ukraine, wasn't thought through. I mean, I mean my, my sense is that it was actually because the annexation of the Crimea went just so easily. I mean, there, was, there was no fighting. I mean, they, they, they had planned for and expected there to be some resistance. And in some ways, it almost meant that they basically were propelled by their own momentum. Um, and others thought, well, if it was that easy, then surely we can actually make Kiev bend the knee just by sort of pushing a little bit further. Um, and then they found it didn't work and they'd, they'd already got, got sucked into this conflict and they now don't really know quite what to do with it. And certainly the hopes that this is somehow a way in which they can get the, the Ukrainian government to change its policies, its, its orientation. I think they're increasingly um, dissipating in Moscow. So. Actually, it's more that Moscow is thinking, look, this is, this is expensive in immediately financial senses. We're having to maintain forces there. We're having to maintain our proxy forces there. 
it's expensive indirectly in that it's contributing to sanctions, which may not be the main thing hitting the Russian economy. That's clearly the oil price. But nonetheless, they, they, they don't help. And just as importantly, it's, it's very expensive politically. It keeps us being the bad guys. And now we've just had the MH17 report come out, which has kind of rekindled um, this, this sense that there is a clear that you know, the Russians are, are, are the bad guys. Now, at the same time, Europe is putting out signals that basically it would like to see peace re-emerge in Ukraine. Um, and there is scope for some kind of a deal. Now, the Americans might not be as happy to do so, but certainly I think from the European point of view, um, some kind of deal which, and I'm just guessing this, which would see Crimea not formally recognized as part of Russia, but essentially de facto taken off the table. The Russians pull out of the Donbass, maybe some of the local militia, warlord leaders, perhaps find sanctuary in Russia, but essentially the Donbass returns to Ukraine. With some clear implicit understanding of what is the truth anyway, is that Ukraine is not imminently going to become a member of the European Union or NATO. Right. Not state to. But the, the main thing is basically that the Russians, I think, would like to pull out, but what they cannot afford to do is make it look like they're being defeated. They're looking for more than just a fig leaf. They're looking for a whole bushel of fig leaves. Um, to allow Putin to say it's, mission, it's a mission accomplished moment. That's what all leaders want, even if you can't do it on top of an aircraft carrier. Um, <laughs> and, and therefore, in a way, this, will, this, will, this would be, I think, in, in Moscow's thinking, part of the deal. That essentially we'll help you out in the Middle East. We won't be problematic. Um, maybe even we'll be the people who will negotiate some kind of political deal, which means that Assad goes... He can just join. There is a whole colony, frankly, of ex-dictators um, living around the Moscow Ring Road. So I'm sure there's Victor a dash Yanukovych, for not, uh, not least among them, speaking of Ukraine. Exactly. And, and as more expats leave, there's, there's I'm sure, empty dachas. Um, so, you know, maybe the Russians can, can be part of fixing, fixing at least partially what's going on in, in Syria. Because let's face it, at the moment, no one except for Islamic State can really be said to be winning in Syria. Um, and in return for which he gets cover to be able to withdraw from Ukraine, have at least partial lifting of sanctions um, and gets to claim that every, everything is fine now. And we, the reason we're leaving is because we now have guarantees that ensure that the, the neo-fascists of Kiev are not going to be hunting down Russian speakers in their homes and all the other nonsense that the Russian propaganda machine put out. So I think that's that's the deal. He's injected himself in Syria so that he has more leverage to be able to arrange, shall we say, um, defeat with honor in Ukraine. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Well, I mean, honestly, that's the first time I've heard that theory, um, and it's fascinating. Yeah, most people are have been talking about how essentially this is just him turning to another war front. And anyway, but what you say makes an awful lot of sense. I think it also because it fits into a, a, a longer trend. Now, again, I mean, this is because I'm, I'm going into kind of deep chronological wonkery. Um, but for example, I mean, earlier they'd made an, an unexpected move. They had taken a deputy director of the Federal Security Service, which is the sort of KGB um, successor agency, the guy who'd actually been in charge of the counterterrorism operation around the Sochi Winter Olympics, Alex Molotov, and they'd made him into a brand new deputy foreign ministerial position um, as deputy foreign minister for counterterrorism cooperation. Now, no one else has got a deputy foreign minister for counterterrorism cooperation. And the reason why the Russians had that was precisely because they were hoping this was going to be one of the areas in which they could get some kind of traction with the West. Say, look, yeah, you don't like us, but you need us when dealing with the Islamic State. So they'd already signaled this was part of the, you know, their big attempt to try and actually get out of diplomatic isolation. That hadn't been working. So given that the General Assembly of the UN was coming up and, and so Putin could go, Putin always likes to catch the other side by surprise. He likes to have a big, splashy initiative. And so I think this was just a kind of a, an escalation, you know, injecting steroids into something that was already there. You mentioned the uh, Caucasus. You mentioned uh, the... Uh, threat of Islamic militants in the Caucasus. So, uh, I mean, and Putin, of course, in some ways uh, really burst onto the stage uh, in 1999 by taking on the Chechen war, which obviously is in the Caucasus, um, and bringing the Chechens to heel in one way or another, right? To heel is actually probably not bad. I mean, it's sort of under the boot, right? I mean, it was a very, very violent operation, and eventually he turned to this guy, Ramzan Kadyrov. Uh, am I pronouncing that at all right, by Kadyrov. the way? Kadyrov. I mean, it's Ramzan Kadyrov. Yeah. Turning to him, uh, he had been one of the rebels uh, and uh, was actually the son of, uh, of a former leader of Chechnya. And he's about as brutal as you can get, right? And he turned to him and said, here, why don't you finish the pacification? Is that about right, or am I overstating the case? No, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think this is it. They, they, they were delighted to... Find, find a Chechen who could basically out-brutalize the rebels. Um, and even though in the process they've more or less allowed him to become an, the autonomous leader of Chechnya, but as long as he kind of pays constant and fawning obeisance to, to, to Putin, he gets away with quite literally murder. I mean, just talking about the uh, special forces, uh, Spetsnaz, uh, I assume that they were, uh, and we were talking about would they have a role in, in Syria, but maybe you could actually just broaden out a little bit and tell us a little bit about them and, and what role they might have had in Chechnya as well. Okay, well, the Spetsnaz, um, it's always difficult writing about, or talking about the Spetsnaz because precisely they have been so mythologized, and everyone has this sense that they are these 10-foot-tall red ninjas, Right, you see the you see the picture online of the Spetsnaz upside down throwing an axe into a uh, a target. Yeah, and and frankly, there's so many sort of Spetsnaz memes in in Russia, but also in in the West. 
Um, I think it's worth it, it is worth worth sort of dwelling and, and, and looking into them. I mean, because the start point is there are something like seventeen thousand of them. Um, seven regular brigades, a whole bunch of independent brigades, naval spetsnaz, and so forth. Um, and when one thinks of seventeen thousand special forces, wow, that, that sounds quite quite terrifying. Um, I remember once once doing a briefing for some. Uh, I just say NATO special forces people, and I sort of came up with that figure. You could see them straightening up, thinking, "Oh my gosh!" But the point is, there are Spetsnaz and there are Spetsnaz. Just as not all of the Russian army is of equal standing and quality, so too I mean, a lot of the Spetsnaz are conscripts. So they're still they're there on one-year terms, and okay, they're probably the pick of the conscripts, and they're ones who beforehand had already sort of you know were physically fit and whatever else, but they're still conscripts. The majority of the Spetsnaz were really long-range reconnaissance forces um, for a, a big war, of the sort that we would sort of prepare ourselves for in, in Cold War days. Now they have become more like intervention forces. And to me, the majority of the Spetsnaz really we would think of perhaps like, in US terms, Army Rangers or the French Foreign Legion or whatever. So they are yeah, absolutely better than your average Russian soldier. But they're really designed to operate in quite large units in the context of some major operation. So you know, they are precisely the kind of forces that you might see deployed to somewhere like, like Syria. Within that number, there, are, there is a much smaller proportion who are equivalent to sort of tier one Western special forces, um, particularly in the so-called um, Special Operations Command, KSO. This is sort of a, a new unit um, that actually had its first real operational deployment with the seizure of Crimea. Um, so what we're actually talking about is, as it were, two Spetsnazes. The, the wider Spetsnaz, who are, who are so basically exactly scouts, who are there as, as force multipliers for other forces more than anything else. And then the handful who are the real hard-bitten, snake-eating, axe and sharpened entrenching tool throwing tough guys. Now, in operation in wars like, like Chechnya, I mean, often they ended up being used for the wrong purposes. They ended up often being used for things like convoy support or guard duties, simply because the Russians didn't have enough reasonably good deployable troops. And the thing is, the Spetsnaz, like, 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 like any sort of better than normal force, can, can do any operation. It's just a bit of a waste to have them guarding trucks. Um, but on the other hand, where they, where they were particularly valuable, as they had been beforehand, frankly, in the Soviet war in Afghanistan, was when precisely they went out of the major deployment areas and engaged in, for example, ambushing supply caravans, tracking down rebel leaders and killing them, perhaps by calling in airstrikes or whatever, that kind of thing. That's how they were used in Chechnya. And again, so we might see that in Syria. Again, not some kind of mass deployment of thousands of troops into straightforward ground pounding operations, but relatively small teams that are being used as force multipliers. As, as I said, things like you know, calling in airstrikes, um, hunting down um, leaders or, or particular sort of uh, high value targets amongst the rebels, infiltrating rebel lines, sabotage, that kind of thing. Um, and I think they will, be, they will be quite effective at that. But again, what they can't do is substitute for just simply enough 
reasonably good, reasonably disciplined, reasonably well-motivated troops, which is what actually Assad is having trouble assembling. You mentioned the uh, Alawites as his main group. And uh, just, uh, I thought for the sake of clarity, it might be worth mentioning that the uh, Alawites are sort of a Shia sect. Is the, uh, uh, They're not actually the same sect as the main Iranian sect as well, right? Yeah, I mean, Alawite is, is more, frankly, an ethnic... Uh, I mean, the, there are the religious dimensions as well, but, I mean, it, it's more ethno-political. I mean, it, this is basically the constituency from which um, Assad draws his political support. Um, and, and they're the people who, in a way, know that they're unlikely to do well if the Damascus regime crumbles. Gotcha. So, and unless they get the full 17,000 Spetsnaz uh, delivered on the back of a truck, that could very well be where they, uh, they end up? I think so. I mean, I think you know, one of the reasons why the Russians deployed when they did, apart from being sort of the, the wider issues, um, is that I think there were concerns that momentum was swinging against Damascus quite badly, and obviously momentum matters in war, because particularly it has a, can have a dramatic impact on morale. Uh, and again, I mean, this, is, this is before that, but just again, talking to Russians um, in Moscow who you know, come from the military side of things, a fair number of them um, served in Afghanistan, or if nothing else, Afghanistan still looms very large in how they think about foreign deployments. And if one thinks of the regime that the Soviets left behind when they withdrew, the Najibullah regime, it was actually pretty effective um, in its own brutal, rough and ready way. But the point was, um, in 1990, the defence minister, Shanawas Tani, defected. And really, when that happened, the regime was starting to crumble. And I think this is what they were fearing, that with momentum beginning to swing decisively against Damascus, that's the point when people begin to decide that maybe it's worth trying to jump ship. And so I think what they were doing is trying to th jump in at this point also, just to give the regime a breathing space. Um, in the hope that it could re-cohere um, and, and re-gather its forces. But that's just a breathing space. I, I mean, again, I, I'd be surprised to think that they honestly, or certainly the high command, the general staff, honestly thought that this pretty limited deployment was actually going to have a huge effect on the ground. I think that's actually a terrific place to stop. Um, yeah, that's perfect. And, uh, yeah, well... Thank you very much for taking the time to uh, talk with us and uh, take us through all this. Um, and uh, apologize if we wandered a little bit to uh, be, I apologize to the audience, but uh, honestly, there are so many fascinating threads to uh, track down. It's uh, hard to get it all into a half-hour show. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm ha happy to ramble as as long as you're willing to give me space. <laughs> okay. If you enjoyed this or other episodes of War College, go over to the iTunes page and uh, tell us what you think about us. That would be a wonderful thing, and uh, we look forward to getting your feedback. Next time on War College. Experiences like this that, that led General Pete Schoomaker to compare JSOC during this period to, to a brand new Ferrari that was being kept in the garage out of concern that if it was taken out to, to race, the fender might get dented. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.